Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dr. Kathleen Schock on the show. Dr. Schock is the host of Valley Edition. A Fresno native, Dr. Schock has a bachelor's degree in international relations from the University of Southern California and a master's degree in journalism from UC Berkeley and a doctorate in educational leadership from Fresno State. Dr. Schock has more than 20 years of experience in journalism and communications. Her background includes working as a news associate for NBC News in New York and as a general assignment reporter for KGPE in Fresno. In addition to her work at Valley Public Radio, Dr. Schock teaches journalism at Fresno City College and serves as the advisor of The Rampage, the college student-run newspaper. As many of you know, I love talking to journalists, and this conversation found its way from international relations to tap dancing, from the wonderful science fiction writer Octavia Butler to what makes an NPR voice distinctive. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Kathleen Schock and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. My wife and I were watching this show called White Lotus the other day. Oh, we're um, watching it too. It's so good. And there's a scene where uh, one character goes, I, I don't know her name, but I just, I look, I, when I see her, I think Tammy Taylor, uh, Coach Taylor's wife from Friday Night Lights. Um, yep. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure the other, I, I'm bad with character names. But anyway, in any case, um, uh, one character walks up to the Tammy Taylor character and they have this conversation where this kind of like, mutual affirming conversation uh, about, you know, women and uh, retaining your independence within a marriage. Um, and so we were watching that and we kept pausing it on and off and talking about it. Um, and part of what we were talking about is something that I know that, uh, you know, women with education uh, don't often get, which is that doctor in front of their name. Um, and it's something that my wife, who also has a doctorate and uh, works in a kind of a medical environment, often will get the name Miss put in front of her name when there will be two doctors in the room. One of them will be Dr. Dr. James. And then my wife, Miss Pinner, uh, will get the Miss attributed to her. Um, and I just have to commend you because your name with doctor just sounds amazing. It sounds like a, a superhero. <laughs> yeah, that's like what a... my friend said. Yeah, that I sound like an evil superhero now. Yeah, yeah Dr. Shock. Good. I do have a volcano that's filled with, uh, you know, has robots underneath. Um, so <laughs> this will align very well with what I already do on my, you know, off hours. So yes. yeah, that's great. Dr. Shock, man, <laughs> that is an awesome, an awesome superhero name. So uh, Dr. Shock, where do you like to eat in Fresno? You know, I, um, everywhere yeah, we are. So we have so many, so much great food in Fresno. I'm just, uh, yeah. Um, so this is a tough question. I think in terms of our go-tos, like takeout places, uh, we get a, we love Thai from Sabadi, which is on first and Bullard. Mm-hmm. Um, I know B and K is like the go-to standard for Thai, but so, give Sabadi a, a chance. I think they're pretty good. Um, we typically go to Phoenician gardens for Mediterranean, uh, that's on Herndon and first, 
And if it's like a fancy thing, like if we're celebrating, uh, we like to go out to the schoolhouse restaurant in Sanger. Yeah, I know that's not Fresno, but anyway. Yeah, well, Fresno's a region. So I, um, I've not been to the last one. Is it, is it Schoolhouse? Schoolhouse. Oh, so school it's, Schoolhouse. Yeah, Tell it's, me about that. It's in an old uh, brick former schoolhouse. It's a beautiful building. Um, so if you're going to Sequoia, it's right where you make that turn. Um, okay. Anyway, it's, uh, yeah, it's just a fabulous restaurant. It is just a really cool building and maybe a 20 minute, 25 minute drive from Fresno. So it's not too far. So yeah, I highly recommend it. What kind of food is the schoolhouse? Typical like steaks, pasta. New American. Yeah. 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 But, th- but it's all very good. Yeah. This question is tough, I think, in a lot of ways, because when you say something, you don't say something else. And, you know, restaurants are in such thin margins these days that <laughs> recommending one uh, that might already be popular feels kind of like a, you know, like a knife in the back of someone who is struggling and maybe they aren't getting the name recognition. And so I, yeah, I struggled to answer the question as well. But at the end of the day, you know, we live in a free market. We have to go where we like the food. You know, I mean, uh, it's got to be something where you appreciate the work they do. But it's also important to remember those restaurants. Oh, yeah. Once a month, I go to this place in West Fresno that maybe isn't getting as much attention. I think about this in terms of breweries um, because I like, you know, there's a few that I like. um, And then there's that new one uh, amalgamation that's way out there on the west side that I hardly ever go to. Um, But I like to mention them because you know, I think they started like three months before the pandemic started. Ooh. And so I know that there, you know, it was not easy. And so that's the, there's almost an ethics of mentioning food. I feel like that. That's interesting. Comes, yeah. Comes into this. So. Um, well, so, and there's, it's such a, the restaurants, restaurants are such a big part of our community. You know, it's the place where we gather with friends. It's um, there's just something very, I think our relationships with these local restaurants are it, not the kind of relationship you typically have with a business. There's something a lot more personal about it. So I love talking to journalists. We can go on and on. Um, and I want to start with uh, some of your background. Um, I just recently finished uh, Samantha Power's great memoir um, about her time uh, in Obama's administration. Um, and she kind of had this journalist background and she mm-hmm. became a foreign correspondent um, in Bosnia uh, during that period of time. And I saw that, you know, you have a background in international relations. That's where you, what you got your undergraduate uh, degree in. And, you know, I think there is this uh, big appeal for journalists to be the foreign correspondent, to work in other places. Um, and I, I think that job is important, but there's also this aspect of local news uh, that maybe isn't as sexy uh, for a journalist. Um, so how do you think your background in international relations and that study uh, influences the way you look at local issues in Fresno? You know, that is such a cool question. I've never I've never gotten that question before. I've never thought about it before, honestly. When I went into IR or international relations, I think mm-hmm. I saw it as like political science just on a global scale. And it, it is that, but it's also sort of a blend of history and uh, uh, psychology and religious studies, even to a certain extent, you know, all combined to try to anticipate human behavior and what motivates people. And, you know, I, 
if it's such a vast field and, and I studied it so long ago, I'm certainly not an expert in it, but I do think it has shaped the way I come across, the way I approach thinking about why we do what we do. And, you know, at the end of the day, humans are not rational. Um, humans are often motivated by fear and perceptions of scarcity, whether or not those perceptions are real. Um, and we can easily be persuaded to act against our self-interest. And so I think that sounds very pessimistic. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm generally not a pessimistic person, but I think having that understanding, um, I do think colors the way I think about issues as they are unfolding in our community. Um, and, and, you know, the Central Valley is such an interesting place. I, I grew up in Fresno. I left for about 10 years. I lived in Southern California, Northern California, New York. And then coming back here enabled me to see it from a different vantage point. And I, I kind of think of the, of the Central Valley as a bit of an island within California. We're a little bit isolated from the rest of the state. We're a bit removed. I think there's a perception here that if we have a problem, we have to figure it out on our own. No one's going to come in and save us. Um, and, and I think that that those um, th that's some of the some in, to some extent that shapes the way in which we go about tackling the issues that we face. I, I, that doesn't really answer your question, but no, I mean it answers a lot though. And I think what I what I was probing with with a little bit with that question is there's nothing that worries me more when I see a journalist and their bachelor's degree is in journalism and then their master's degree is in journalism. Oh yeah, that's and deadly. That, and, that, and that lack of context uh, concerns me. And I, the best journalists for me are the ones that study biology or chemistry or something that, that come with a certain bent to their perspective um, that is missing if you just learn, learn a method, you know, cause I think journalism is, is, is learning a method. It's, it's a set of oh, tools. It's, uh, a to it's a trade. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, for people that want to be journalists, I think the best thing to do is just study something weird with your undergrad. Yeah, and I totally agree. And the, the second half to what I was probing with is that international relations or IR is something, uh, that is interdisciplinary. And when you are a journalist being able to drop something and pick something up, uh, is a skill because you have to be able to adapt. So if you're working in Fresno, for example, one day you might be looking at ag issues. Another day you might be looking at zoning issues. Another day you might be looking at water issues. Another day you might be looking at climate issues. There's so many uh, kind of hats that you have to wear that I, I imagine that IR kind of prepares you to be a great multitasker in your brain. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I was attracted to IR as a field, I have a very short attention span and I'm really curious. So it's, that's what I love about reporting is, you know, I get to talk to smart people who know way more than I do. Um, and I get to learn something that I don't know. And then I get to share that with other people. Like if, if I could do nothing but that for the rest of my life, I would be so content. Like that's, that's the best part of reporting uh, from my vantage point. But to, to what you were saying, I totally agree with you that you know, journalism, studying journalism in school, is just, it's just a trade. You know, when I went to grad school, that's how I approached it. Um, I always encourage people 
who are interested in journalism to, you know, follow their passions in, and, and gain some knowledge about how the world works outside of just, you know, learning how to, you know, write a, you know, good lead. Like that's something you pick up along the way. The best journalists have different backgrounds, as you said, and have lived in the world and have traveled. And um, yeah, that's, that's a much more important um, background than, you know, sitting in a classroom and, just, you know, approaching journalism from an academic perspective, that doesn't do anyone any good. Do you think it'd be smarter to use your undergrad to learn the trade of journalism or like you did go to grad school to pick up the trade? I feel like you're assuming that I had some kind of a plan, which I, I <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I wanted you to reflect back and think about the way you did it, if you would do it the same way again. So I, I've done everything just completely backwards. Um, it worked out for me, but it's everybody's on a different path. So I really can't say. So like for me, I I kind of always wanted to be a journalist, but I, I didn't do anything about it. Like I didn't write for the school paper. I didn't even really think about it. I think I just watched Murphy Brown on TV and like <laughs> liked that show and thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. So anyway, yeah. So I, I didn't study any journalism in, in, as an undergrad, even though I thought that's something I may want to do in the future. Then I realized after graduating that it is what I want to do. But at that point, I didn't have any skills or experience. I hadn't had any internships. I couldn't get an internship because I was already out of school and I couldn't afford to work for free. So I ended up going to grad school just because that was my only entry point to the profession. Um, so in that sense, it worked out well for me. But, um, you know, everybody's, everybody's different. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Valley Edition, which I think, I'm just going to say this here, is the best podcast you can listen to slash radio show in the Valley because, uh, you know, that exact thing that we're talking about, the ability to cover so many topics at such a breadth, you know, I think is something, and, you know, they're, they're unlike my podcasts, which are exhausting. Uh, these, <laughs> these, these are digestible, you know, there's, there's uh, production there that can keep your attention all the way through the show and such a wide variety of topics. So uh, it's, it's my favorite thing to listen to. Oh, uh, and I obviously, I obviously don't listen to myself, but, you know, aside from that, um, I, want to talk a little bit about what it was like to to kind of manage the ship during the pandemic obviously you know <laughs> there's a stereotype of journalist you know and i think it comes from that movie nightcrawler where it's just you're looking for looking for violence looking for danger looking for threats all the time and i definitely don't get that vibe from npr maybe npr was a little bit during the Trump impeachment trial, they were a little too excited. Uh, but uh, <laughs> normally, uh, you're just covering what, what's happening. Um, so can you talk a little bit about uh, how the pandemic changed programming, uh, or how you thought about programming? Um, it could be both the logistics, but also the content. Um, and uh, what are some of the lessons that you learned uh, during the time? Yeah, I mean, the logistics are boring, so I'll skip yeah. that. But in terms of content, you know, I started as host in January of 2020. And so I, I was, and listen, I have been, you know, working in media for a long time. I've seen other, I've been there for SARS and monkeypox and, you know, all these. And so when I first heard like coronavirus, I'm like, oh, come on, you know, and people were freaking out and I was very dismissive. And, and I remember having conversations in the newsroom, like, you know, well, how, how are we going to look, should we, should we be talking about this? How are we going to localize it? And then all of a sudden it became real apparent that 
not only were we going to cover it, it was the, it was the story. It was the story of the year. So like it went from like the very first panel discussion I had about the coronavirus we actually had in studio, which is crazy to think about. Um, And I remember like, you know, should we shake hands? And this is so weird. And the next thing you know, I'm up here in my, you know, attic, you know, recording the show on my own. Uh, It completely changed our approach to um, what, how, how we, um, went about selecting topics for the, for the show. So every episode was, I mean, really there was a conversation every week. Who's vulnerable? Um, how is this pandemic hurting, you know, different populations? Who have we not heard from? Um, you know, whether it's Punjabi truckers or, um, you know, the LGBTQ community, like it was really just, going out and giving voice to the voiceless and using our platform to the extent that we can to document the effect, how this pandemic was affecting uh, different marginalized communities. So yeah, it changed everything. And it's, it's weird now, kind of after doing that for a year, talking about things that aren't pandemic related, that's, yeah. been, a, that's been a shift for us. So yeah, it changed everything. And, and so, so oh, to your other point or other question, lessons learned. <sighs> yeah, I think that that approach of just kind of stepping back and saying who's vulnerable and letting that drive our conversations, um, I think is something that we're going to continue to do. How can you stop doing that? Um, and it's not that we weren't doing it before, but there's an intentionality to, um, to that process now that I, that I think is a little bit different. So did the story take on special resonance for you, given that your parents are both in the medical profession? Hmm. What an interesting question. Um, yeah, or you know, the, or, or you saw that your, you know, I mean, everyone was seeing their role as important during this time, but like, you know, I'm sure that growing up in that kind of environment probably affected both how you saw it, but also how important you saw your job as being, you know, providing accurate information. Well, I'm very dismissive of my work. Um, I'm just naturally self-deprecating, but you know, my dad was an emergency room physician. My mom was a nurse and, and I will say talking to healthcare professionals over the course of the pandemic, I, you know, my heart went out to them and I think we all were in that place, but it did feel a little bit more personal for me. Um, there were many times when I was, you know, sitting here with tears coming down my face as I was, um, you know, hearing from ICU nurses and, and I, I, you know, I felt it very profoundly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Both my parents are deceased and I miss them both very much. Yeah. Um, we're going to transition to a lighter topic or lighter section rather I call overrated versus underrated. So I'm going to throw some topics at you and then I, uh, you can just say over or underrated, uh, a, a, a popular cop-out is properly rated, which just basically means you don't want to answer the question. Um, but you know, you take it as you, as they come, uh, we'll start with an easy one. Uh, the Bakersfield sound overrated or underrated. I listen. Okay. So I I was going to say, I'm not a country person, but that is not true. Like the dicks, well, the the chicks are like one of my favorite bands. Um, underrated, underrated. Okay. Why? I don't really know. Um, it's from the Valley. So it's probably underrated. That's true. I mean, you know, it was, I will say this, having watched that Ken Burns documentary on country music, 
And also having lived in Bakersfield um, and spent most of my childhood there, I didn't really understand that it was an important thing in this particular period in time. And I didn't understand really Buck Owens or what, what he was about, or, I mean, I had a better sense of Merle Haggard, I guess, because he was much more, uh, you know, recent. Um, yeah. I did go to the crystal palace a couple times as a kid, which I don't know if you've been there. Uh, it's Buck Owens, like, a, it's like a country music hall where there's like a buffet line and there's some kind of, I, I don't want to say the word hack, which is another great show, by the way, hacks. Great but show. I, um, there, you know, there was, you know, small time country musicians that would be playing on the stage while you ate some like really pulverized ribs and giant <laughs> mounds of mashed potatoes. And so that was my association. But then I watched the documentary and I, I felt, I felt not silly, but I felt like I missed something, uh, while I lived there and it wasn't really taught to me in a way where I could see at least its significance. I mean, I don't have to like the music to see its significance. Well, my understanding is that it really merged rock and roll and, and um, you know, different genres of music uh, into country, which must have been incredibly influential. Um, so, yeah, total, totally underrated. Okay. All right. Here's, here's, here's a reach. Okay. Next topic. All right. All uh, right. Tap dancing. Oh, oh, completely <laughs> underrated. Okay. Tap dancing is the best. It is the best workout. It is so much fun. It's like musical and physical. And, you know, you're working, you're, you're using your brain to figure out the rhythm. And, <laughs> and oh, tap dancing is the best. I tap danced in high school. Okay. And then I stopped because, you know, I'm an adult, sure. um, but what I, after I um, uh, divorced my first husband, I needed something to bring some joy to my life. So I started taking tap dancing classes again. And it was um, my, one of my friends and I started tap dancing and it was just the best. So we stuck with it for a while until we got to the recital and our teacher informed us that we would be wearing unitards during the recital. And I'm like, I am a grown woman. Like this is not <laughs> happening. So yeah. So that's, I, I'm a tap dropout, but uh, yeah, totally underrated. Yeah. You know, and I, I've watched some old movies during the pandemic. And one of the ones that I, I watched as a kid, but I hadn't watched again as adult was singing in the rain. And oh, some of those so old good. movies where tap is included, it's just so euphoric, you know, those, those dance numbers. And we just don't really have tap in film anymore. It just isn't part of the film La La industry. Land. What's that? La La Land. That's true. But that's I mean, a, when that, that's when a they, one-off. That's a listen, one-off. When they started tapping, I grabbed my husband. I started to tear up. Like, I was so excited. But yeah, you're right. It's a one-off. <laughs> so maybe there needs to be a tap renaissance. I don't know who's going to do it. But uh, there's plenty of, uh, you know, uh, people that are uh, legacies of those uh 50s and 60s actors that could sing, tap, act, do the whole thing. I'm sure we can find some. And, you know, I think musicals are a thing, but that yeah. tap element's just missing, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's kind of like, I don't know, it's like a good sax solo. Like, it's just, like, it's just that, like yeah, like, you know, <laughs> iconic. Anyway, I'm, I'm ready for the tap renaissance. I'm here for it. I've got two pairs of tap shoes in my closet right now, so I'm ready. Noted. Um, next one. <laughs> Uh, the book Cooked by Michael Pollan. You know, or, I have... or his any of his uh, work on food. 
Oh, well, he's amazing. I haven't read that book. Um, so I can't speak to that one in particular, but I've, I've, I'm well aware of his work and have read some of his other stuff. Yeah. He's totally underrated. Um, he, and I'm bummed because he teaches or taught, um, at my former journalism school, but after I had already graduated, so I never got a chance to meet him or, or work with him. Um, but I think his approach to eating, um, you know, eat real food, you know, if your if your grandmother wouldn't recognize it as, as food, don't eat it. You know, I, I think about that all the time when I'm in the grocery store. Um, he's, yeah, I think he takes a really, um, uh, thoughtful and, uh, you know, and to your point earlier, I think he takes his passion for food and nutrition, and he is able to combine it with his journalistic training in such a way that he's able to report about these issues in a way that nobody else is able to. So yeah, Michael Pollan is the bomb. Yeah. And I, I, um, I love the word bellwether, uh, to describe someone that kind of can sense that, uh, the changing of the tides, if you will. Um, and so he, you know, really, I don't know if he precipitated, but he was very much riding the wave of the food movement. And now, of course, he's doing work on drugs. And that is one of the most fascinating reads right now. I just finished, uh, this is, you know, I'll recommend this book right now because it's just absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, it's called Drug Drug Use for Adults. Um, and it's uh, one of the world's leading uh, drug experts, uh, chair of professor of psychology at Columbia wrote this fascinating book. That's really just kind of broke my brain on drugs. And Michael Pollan is writing about drugs right now. He just released a book called uh, your mind on plants. And so, you know, it's a, he's, he's one of those people that just to watch just to term in terms of seeing where uh, culture is moving. Totally. Um, totally. He can identify it quite well. All right. Uh, next one, uh, career and technical training in public schools over or underrated career and technical training um and uh let's say k-12 yeah sure uh um underrated yeah okay. we need it we need it desperately um yeah. won't those skills just disappear though once they learn them or do you think those skills are here to stay career and technical training yeah if not if they apply it yeah. and i mean and really and not if it's connected to to something that they're interested in or passionate about um you know in fact the the woman who cuts my hair uh, went to cosmetology school while she was in high school and, mm. you know, has created a whole business for herself. And that's one that we, we need to, to, I don't want to, you know, say I want to undermine the big institution, but I do. I feel like those cosmetology schools are just, I don't want to say rackets, but they're, they're, you know, the, how much people have to pay in order to get this credentialing, you know, it should just be part of public education that, you know, you want, you want to cut hair, we have an option for you. Right. And I should note, she grew up somewhere on the East coast. I can't remember where exactly it was not a program okay. in California, but her high school was aligned with all of these different, um, you know, uh, technical education programs, I think through a community college, uh, you know, which enabled students to graduate with a skill that would enable them to make money like that should be what high school is yeah. right because not everybody is college bound we should not all be college bound like the economy wouldn't work right if that was the case yeah. so yeah why I mean, we oh, yeah yeah i mean what do you how do you respond to people that say that's more the job of community colleges you know once they everyone in um, the united states should get the same kind of liberal arts education and then once you leave the community college can handle those kids 
in terms of uh, technical tr- or you know, yeah, yeah, technical, yeah. Uh, you know, I think I think that the community college plays a huge role in in filling that void. But there's no reason that we can't have more um, a stronger relationship between. Uh, high school and community colleges. Case in point, um, you know, when there are opportunities for high school students to take uh, classes at community colleges while they're still in high school, those are amazing programs. Um, and, and so I think expanding that uh, and leveraging each other's, uh, you know, resources, all it can do is benefit students. Like, it's not yeah. like, this whole like, you know, oh, it's not us, it's them. Uh, let them take care of it. At the end of the day, they're all our kids. They're, right. This is our community. Like, let's all get to the table and figure out how we can serve them better. You know, right. it's just, it's it's an arbitrary line and um, we kind of see them as these really separate institutions, but they're really, I mean, they're serving the same purpose and they are working with kids at similar ages. Um, the alignment in my mind is just sitting there. All right, right. next one. Uh, next one, uh, the podcast, the trials of Frank Carson underrated. It's really cool. Um, it's yeah, I got, I had a chance to interview the podcast host for Valley edition and, uh, just finished uh, listening to it. I think last week or week before, uh, it's a podcast about a, uh, defense attorney in Stanislaus County who is, uh, very he, quite the character, and he's ultimately uh, accused of um, murder, along with uh, basically be, he's accused of running this sort of crime syndicate. You know, a bunch of people went down: his wife, his stepdaughter, a couple CHP officers. I mean, it's a wild, wild story. Um, and Christopher Gofford is the host. He uh, did the podcast Dirty John. Um, just a really interesting reporter and, uh, yeah, it's a great podcast. Did you listen to it? I did. I, I, uh, it was kind of a podcast on a road trip and it was a perfect one. And let me play devil's advocate. I've been playing devil's advocate a lot in this podcast. I don't know I why, know. but I That's am, okay. I, um, or, or just being a good interviewer, maybe, um, sometimes with these podcasts, especially things that when I see, Oh, it's produced by the LA times and it's about, uh, <laughs> hillbillies in the Valley. I kind of have this kind of like knee-jerk defensiveness that like, oh, the podcasts coming out of the Valley are about how corrupt all of the institutions are. And then that just furthers people in the Bay Area and the LA area to think that the Valley is just a bunch of kind of corrupt yokels, you know, that are, you know, using public institutions to get revenge on people. And so I just worry with these podcasts sometimes that, you know, it's just giving a certain image of the Valley that I don't want to be, you know, proliferated. So I think that's a very fair critique. I will, uh, I will, I will push back on that in in the sense that at least in this particular case, what this was, was I think at the end of the day, an investigation into our judicial system and, you know, whether the extent to which our judicial system centers justice or winning versus winning. And, you know, yes, he flew in from LA and doesn't know the ins and outs of, of this valley. That's totally true. And is and paints it as, you know, meth heads and, mm-hmm. you know, yokels and whatever. 
But if he hadn't done it, I wouldn't know anything about that case. I mean, the Modesto B was covering it, but they weren't covering it extensively. From what I understand, the only journalist who was in the courtroom day in and day out on a regular basis was this guy who like uh, had a blog, like he wasn't even a official journalist. And so, you know, and what I think we're getting to is what happens when local newspapers are not properly funded or staffed. The Modesto B didn't have the resources to do the kind of deep dive into that case that the LA Times can, right? To just send somebody up there and dedicate them to covering that story. And so, you know, I think we're going to see more and more of this as newsrooms, you know, shrink in size. Uh, They're just not, there's not the resources to do the kind of deep dive into these big, important stories. And so they end up just being forgotten or lost. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with that entirely. I, um, you know, if you, if you compare the coverage of Frank Carson's trial with the coverage of the Peterson murder, you know, it's just, it just shows you like that, (laughs) that uh, journalists, you know, can be pushed in particular directions. And I love the independence of just like going in and picking something like that and just sticking to it. Um, It's a great podcast and I recommend it. Next one, Twitter research, doing research on Twitter overrated okay tell me why yeah uh listen and i do it i use twitter as a tool to see what people are talking about and you know whatever but pick up the phone and talk to people i mean that's what i tell my students all the time because i you know i'm an advisor for the student paper at fresno city college and you know they want to just do everything via you know dms and emails and uh, yeah i mean there nothing nothing beats picking up the phone and having a conversation or you know in the before times actually setting up an appointment and meeting somebody for coffee like yeah you know or going to original sources what whatever happened to that you know like finding the actual research and and uh so yeah no boo yeah twitter is kind of like uh smoke you know you you can tell if, you, if you're seeing a lot of conversation about it, you know there's a fire somewhere, but you actually have to get in your car and drive and go find yeah, the fire. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right, two more. Um, given you just brought up uh, your role at uh, Fresno City College, uh, now I'm going to ask a kind of teacher-related one. Canvas, over or underrated? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I'm, well, I'm mad at Canvas right now because I'm spending a lot of time in it getting ready for the fall. So I'll say it's overrated. Yeah. And I bring it up because, you know, the pandemic really pushed a lot of people to become equipped and trained in a lot of these education delivery software Mm -hmm. uh, things. And I think they're here to stay. And I'm sure that we're going to see kind of the pluses and minuses of those things being a dominant force in everybody's classroom now uh post pandemic and so uh canvas is just a just a word for you know education moving to more online interaction and less from the uh you know analog world so i have a question for you yes in what ways did the pandemic change your approach to managing a classroom your approach to teaching are there things that you that you had to adopt adopt because of the pandemic that you're going to stick with well, I was a I was already a Google Classroom person for practical purposes. Um, it just felt easier from a classroom management of, of like the back end stuff, the grading, the keeping track of materials, um, 
13 year olds are not good at managing uh, paper uh, <laughs> they lose it. And um, this enabled, uh, I, at least I saw a dramatic increase in the, the number of missing assignments or late assignments being mm. turned in uh, because they were accessible. They didn't have to go get another printout. They didn't have to do something. And so I saw the benefits of that. I, there was benefits in the grading world. So the benefits are kind of more on the back end in terms of the education experience. I don't know if it really adds anything whatsoever. Um, lots of teachers, you know, during the pandemic, lots of school districts were pushing all of these uh, software programs to, you know, as panaceas, oh, this is going to, you know, Edpuzzle is going to, you know, change your classroom. And really, I don't, I don't think it does. I think it's just another, another way of delivering content to kids. What I do think uh, will take away and something I am taking away uh, from this is uh, working on creating a classroom that's self-paced. Um, what we learned is, and we knew this before the pandemic, that uh, kids learn at different paces and uh, there's only one teacher and figuring out a way to manage all of that uh, meant typically uh, kids that perform high are bored, kids that don't perform well are left behind. And then there's a small group in the middle that's just kind of, you're teaching to them. Yeah. Um, and that's a frustrating experience for educators. Uh, it's a frustrating experience for most students in the classroom. Um, and so I, one of the big things that I, kind of my resolution after the pandemic was to uh, really focus on building a self-paced classroom. Mm. And so that's, that's kind of been my project over the last six months. Nice. Yeah. Uh, last one uh, in this section. Uh, in-person interviews, over or underrated? Underrated, yeah. What do you get out of an interview that you don't get out of Zoom? Oh, everything. <laughs> I mean, there there is just something that happens when you're when you're making real, genuine eye contact with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention, well, as it, the okay. So for Valley Edition, I just talk to people and we, you know, play the interview. But yeah. when you're actually out reporting. You're gathering information, not just from what somebody says to you, but from what you see, how they respond, body language, you know, all of these are clues that help inform where the conversation needs to go, um, you know, whether or not something is worth following up on, you know, being able to look, if you're going to someone's office, looking around the room and, and actually seeing, you know, photos of their kids, like it just helps to paint a picture. Like yeah. you, yeah, yeah, you gotta, yeah. I miss, I miss in-person interviews so much. Yeah, it is. It is different. Um, I will say when I do when I've done this podcast in person, um, it definitely I feel like it changes the conversation. There is there is a more personalization to the conversations that happen. Um, I just recorded an in person interview uh, with the uh, new director of the zoo, um, and we did it, you know, at their offices. And I, you know, it was like my first interview in person and a year. And so I was like, Oh God, I don't know if I can, you know, I'm going to struggle with eye contact. I'm probably (laughs) going to need to get like a little cardboard box and put it over his face. So it'll (laughs) feel like zoom. Um, But it was great. And it, you know, it lasted half an hour longer than my typical interviews do over zoom. And it felt, it felt like I got to know him better by being around him in person yeah. and yeah, totally. it changed, it changed the nature of the conversation, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, so I, I agree with you. I hope that they come back and I will say the benefit of this is I'm in my office, you're in your attic. We can 
grab coffee downstairs and come back. I mean, there's some, there's some benefits. And I, I do, sometimes I do interviews that uh, are with people that are far away and I couldn't do that obviously yeah. in person. Yeah. And so there's some definite benefits for a more streamlined system of interviewing, but you lose a lot, like you said. Yeah, yeah for so. sure. Um, all right. Here, we're, we're done with overrated versus underrated. So you Whew, that was a that. marathon. Yeah, that was. Um, so <laughs> I've got just a few more questions. Um, the first one is kind of a little bit tongue in cheek, um, but it, it has a deep kind of foundation to the question. Um, is there an NPR voice? Uh-huh. And yeah. if so, why is that? Ah, I don't, I, I, you know, it's something that I, I think evolved from the very beginnings of NPR. Um, I'm, I'm a big NPR fan before I was ever affiliated with um, Valley Public Radio. You know, I started listening to NPR in my 20s, uh, living down in LA. And, and um, you know, I would joke, like I would read the paper in my NPR voice, like <laughs> when I was in my 20s, you know, yeah, there, it's definitely a thing. Uh, it's, it's like a calm, confident, um, I, I, there's, there's a quality to it, but it's also uh, conversational. So like when the first time I sat down to host a show, I got into the recording studio and I was like, you know, coming up on Valley edition, da, 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 like with my TV voice. And my news director was like, okay, bring it down, bring it down. Just you're talking to someone. Mm. You're just talking. It's like, oh, on the next Valley edition. You know, it's like, and you just, you find it. Um, it's, a, it's really white. Um, you know, that's another part of it. Uh, it's, it's a very um, sort of generic uh, vanilla. Uh, and it's, 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 it just sounds really white. Um, yeah. So, you know, and I think that's problematic. And, and I do think it's changing and evolving. We're hearing more diversity and voices um, on NPR, you know, you've got folks like Sam Sanders and Aisha Roscoe who are, you know, kind of mixing things up. But uh, yeah, I think there's a critique to that NPR voice. Definitely. I mean, it's been stereotyped so much. The best stereotype was in the show Parks and Rec, uh, where they have their local public radio station and they're playing like, uh, you know, freestyle jazz and uh all of their names are super long and complicated um, oh yeah yeah, and, yeah 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 and and you know i mean i think that's the the most non-white aspect of npr is the names yeah you're right sure. there's this this voice and so let's talk about community college um and preparing the next generation of journalists um what role do you see the community college system serving in fresno in particular um, and how do you see that changing and evolving as we're, you know, a lot of education moves online, you know, like kind of what we were talking about a second ago, uh, but how do you see, where is it right now? And then how, where do you see it going? In general or specific to journalism? Um, maybe let's start with in general, and then we can talk about the journalism department. Sure. So, you know, in order to meet the demands of the workforce, we know that we as a region are going to have to really um, get serious about ensuring that more students are continuing their education past high school. Now, and it, we talked about this earlier, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody needs to run out and get a bachelor's degree, although we do need to get more students graduating with bachelor's degrees just to meet the demands of the workforce. Like, 
this isn't a question of, I mean, sure, it's a question of morality and what's right and wrong and creating opportunities, but it's also just literally economics, right? So if we think about it that way, the community college, as we talked about earlier, you know, it is that open access institution that is going to be at the center of whether we achieve our educational goals as a region or we don't, you know, not only because community colleges, you know, provide that affordable, equitable, available to all access to enter higher education, but also all of the vo vocational uh, career technical education that uh, community colleges provide uh, to the community. So, you know, in terms of where I see it headed, um, you know, obviously there's going to be more and more online education. You know, I think that's an inevitability. I'm really more interested, and, and mind you, I'm a higher education policy nerd, so um, bear with me. But if you think about it, public higher education in California was um, built upon a master plan that was written in 1960. We are a different state now. But under that original plan, you have the community colleges, which you know are the biggest system, they're available to all. They offer career and technical education as well as associate's degrees. Then the next step up is the CSU, which offers, you know, which is a four-year institution. It offers bachelor's degrees and master's degrees. Then at the top of the tier, you have the UC, which are you know, top-tier research institutions that confer PhDs. What we're seeing is that those distinctions are blurring because they're just not working. They are, they are prohibitive of our goals of getting as many students educated as possible. So I think in terms of community colleges, what we're going to see is that master plan is going to have to be reimagined and uh, likely community colleges are going to start offering bachelor's degrees. Um, I think that's where the world is headed. Um, and so anyway, I just think there's I, I love working at a community college. I think it is where the rubber meets the road in terms of higher education. I, um, I'm really excited to see where, where, where the, that institution is headed because really so much of our ability to stay competitive is, is, is rooted in what we do here at the community college. Yeah. And I wonder too, with that, uh, this idea that uh, I'm just, imagining a community college offering a bachelor's degree. I think part of the uh, one argument for that would be a lot of students get lost in the transfer process, you know, and transferring from one institution to the other can often be painful, involve a lot of paperwork. Some classes don't match up or something. And if you can get a student in a system um, and keep them through in order to a kind of a completion date of the bachelor's degree, I'm sure we'd have a lot more people completing degrees um, without having to deal with mitigating between these separate institutions. Yeah, I, 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 there's so much I could say about the transfer process. I actually well, spent about a year working for a nonprofit that uh, part of our mission was to help ease that transition. Uh, there are, if, yeah, I mean, the, the metaphor is there's a pipeline, right? Right. But all these, there's all these holes, right? Students are just falling out because of, bad counseling or uh, bad articulation agreements between institutions or failure to transfer um, transcripts. I mean, it's, it's some of the s stories that are just heartbreaking and, yeah. you know, and, and unnecessary. So yeah, anyway, that's a whole other 
Yeah. Do you see any downside to community colleges offering bachelor's degrees? You know, I think, as I said, I think we're going to have to reimagine what public higher education is in California, what these different institutions are. I mean, I, I think if the resources are there to offer a bachelor degree, bachelor's degree, um, you know, we need to ramp up our capacity. Like we need more, and, and I had the data back when I was working on my dissertation, um, you know, but like we, we don't have enough seats to educate enough students with bachelor's degrees to meet the workforce demands. Yeah, which and, means the, and those have... public universities are impacted too. Like right. a lot of those degree programs that are coveted, you sometimes you just don't even get in because there's not enough spots. Most of the CSUs are impacted at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if we don't have the capacity to, you know, fulfill the promise that public higher education made to the citizens of California, we gotta we gotta figure something out. So, yeah, I think I don't I don't see a downside. I, I think a critique that I can already hear in my head is that you know the if if community colleges start offering bachelor's degrees, does that further this kind of, uh, you know, credentialing inflation, you know, where you just have, you know, you, you tell a student that you get a bachelor's degree, it means you get a job. Um, but if it, if everyone has bachelor's degrees and they become synonymous with diplomas, um, but I don't think that's really the situation we're in uh, at all. Um, and I, ironically, I actually think bachelor's degrees at community colleges probably be better because uh, some of the best teachers are at community colleges. Um, they're the people less interested in making a name in the research domain and entirely focused on the teaching profession. Aspect. Well, it's yeah, it's the incentive structure, right? If you're a, if you're a faculty member at uh, UC Merced, your number one obligation is to do research. That's what you're hired to do. Yeah. Teaching undergraduates is you know it's not a priority. Whereas you know as a community college instructor you know, I'm singularly focused on teaching. Yeah. 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 Um, and then in terms of uh, the journalism department at uh, Fresno city, um, where do you see that going? Um, is cause there's a student newspaper. Is there other forms of media that you're exploring um, as ways to prepare future journalists? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see uh, what we figure out when we get back in the classroom. Um, Cause I know that students have, what I anticipate will be the future of the program is just more of an emphasis on, on multimedia journalism, um, podcasting videos, uh, things of that na nature. Um, but in terms of the, our journalism program, I, I think the big contribution that I would like to see uh, us make is in the realm of diversity. You know, my students at, you know, Fresno City College are incredibly diverse. And, you know, a lot of them come to me saying like, you know, I want to be a sports reporter, <laughs> you know, or I want to be an entertainment reporter. Uh, but if we could get those students um, focused on actually reporting local news and, and get them into local newsrooms, you know, once they graduate, uh, that could play a huge role in, um, in diversifying the kind of people who are out covering our valley. And I think that is part of, part of uh, a larger solution to rebuilding trust between journalism as a profession and the general public. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 uh, 
that being said, I, I'm the first to admit that most of the students that I teach will not go into journalism. But all of the students that I teach will be consumers of news. Mm -hmm. So um, the extent to which I can help students grow their media literacy, literacy skills uh, so that they are better consumers of information, um, I, I think is also, it's, it's my way of giving back. Yeah. Uh, let's close with books. Um, I like to close with book recommendations. Wait, wait, uh, can, can I ask you, did you steal this from Ezra Klein? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, he, well, I mean, I don't, no, there's no. multiple people, there's multiple people that do it. Um, he is not the only one. He's definitely the most, uh, most prominent that does it. Um, because I love it. I love it. I mean, there's no no shade or anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm happy to steal. The overrated, underrated section is definitely stolen um, from an economist that has a great podcast that's very similar to this. Um, and the book recommendations is it. I didn't know Ezra did it before I started doing it. Okay, but, okay. So I will say, you know, kind of like those inventions where 14 different people invented at the same time. I will say it's kind of like that. Yeah. Um, but what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? You know, whenever I'm asked this question, uh, the, the book I always recommend is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, it's uh, nonfiction, but it reads like fiction. Uh, tells the story of the great migrations, uh, why uh, Blacks moved from the South up to the North and, and out West, um, looking for more freedom and more opportunity. Um, it was, it is such a big part of the American story in terms of magnitude and, and, and how it shaped American cities that we never talk about. And, and so it was a really eye-opening book for me as an American. Um, and then also as a black American, you know, my family moved from uh, Arkansas to St. Louis out to Fresno to work in the fields. And, you know, I knew the story, but I really didn't understand the economic drivers, the political and social drivers behind it. So anyway, it's a wonderful, so, okay, the other one, I, another book I would recommend is uh, a book called The Undocumented Americans by Carla Cornejo Villavenicio. And she blends fiction and nonfiction in this really interesting way to tell the story of uh, several uh, undocumented Americans that she profiles in the book. Uh, and I think in blending fiction and nonfiction, she gets to a larger truth, uh, which um, it's hard to describe. You just have to read it. It's yeah. a short book. It's, it's just gorgeous. I, I really believe that if every American read this book, we would have, it would completely change our discord around mm -hmm. immigration. Yeah. Um, and then my last recommendation is a book called Kindred by Octavia Butler. It's a uh, um, Blood Child was one of my favorite books. Yeah. By yeah. Far. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I discovered Octavia Butler just in the last year and have been blown through her catalog. And oh, so good. Yeah. So, so good. good. There's so many good things in there. And um, sci fi, you know, sci fi is one of those things where, again, talking about stereotypes of who reads what or whatever, sci fi is just, it's one of those genres where it feels hard to get into. Uh, but she made it very accessible for mm -hmm. me. Um, and I haven't read a ton of sci-fi, but I've let, read a lot of her sci-fi and it's sci-fi is just, you know, really at the core of it, just, you know, 
you know, human experiences in different places yeah, or in this, in this case, bugs. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So um, well, let's, uh, let's close by talking about uh, where we can find your work. I know that uh, obviously we can turn on uh, the radio 89.3 at certain times of the day, but you also have a podcast format, correct? Yeah, well, you could uh, follow, uh, subscribe to the Valley Edition podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, and then or just listen to the show. We're on F it's FM 89. Uh, we air Fridays at one and again, uh, repeat the broadcast at uh, 7 p.m. on Fridays. Uh, or you can listen to us online, uh, kvpr.org. Uh, we also have an app uh, that's called KVPR. There's so many cool shows on KVPR and, you know, I, uh, you know, just listening to Marv's voice, you know, there's so oh, many I great know. reasons to listen to NPR, KVPR, I should say. Um, and there's shows where it's a weird time of day and you turn it on and you're like, what are they talking about? And yeah. then you discover this really, so I recommend what people do is go, download the PDF of the schedule over the week and look at the different programming options uh, and try a show that you've never heard of. Cause you can, you can pull up a lot of these shows at different times and listen to them. Um, and they're worth listening to cause there's, there's a lot of interesting content. Even, even I would argue uh, listening in the afternoons from one to four, uh, listening to the classical programming. I'm a huge classical nerd and uh I just love when they read the names of the Russian uh, composers, you know, well, or, we, or Latvian, you know, you're just like, how did you do that? Well, we have updated our programming. So we're now pretty much all talk uh, weekdays uh, from morning edition to, um, you know, all things considered. So oh, got it. Okay. yeah, so we've uh, brought a lot of new shows to the Valley, uh, Think Forum, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones uh, that uh, we've added to the lineup. Uh, it's been a minute with Sam Sanders. Um, so we're, we're definitely uh, sort of moving into more of a talk format, although we still offer classical programming um, uh, through a digital radio station. So, you know, depending on, you, you can have your, have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what you do is you put on the classical music while you're working on some project in the afternoon, but then you slide when you need a break, you slide into Sam Sanders. He's the perfect right. person to take a break with. So, <laughs> totally. Totally. Anyway, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for doing this with me. Oh, thank you. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, you can support the podcast by leaving us a rating and review on Apple podcasts, which I could use more of those or by supporting us financially at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.